Chapter Ten of the Story of Avis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Story of Avis by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. Chapter Ten. Are there not two points in the adventure of the diver? One when a beggar he prepares to plunge. One when a prince he rises with his pearl. Festus, I plunge. Festus, I wait you when you rise. Browning's Paracelsus There now began in Avis a memorable conflict, which only a woman, and of women perhaps only a few, can articulately understand. Ostrander felt that it was only accelerated, but did not believe that it was in any other sense affected by the state of extreme exhaustion into which that morning by the shore had plunged him. He had struggled up through the orchard and the garden, and as far as the studio, where he sank upon the steps. The professor and Aunt Chloe came out and got him into the house, and he lay for the rest of the day upon the study sofa, sorely spent. Nothing would have suited Aunt Chloe better than to keep him beneath her motherly wing. She had small secret respect for Barbara Allen's nursing. What could a girl with red curls know about gunshot wounds? And she understood that Mr. Ostrander had been kept too long in a dark room. Men, like flowers, waxed strong in the light of heaven. Undoubtedly Barbara could play opera music for him downstairs, but meanwhile who was to rub the poor fellow's feet? or exert an authoritative influence in the question of wet or dry heat in an attack of pain. And now that he had really gone back to the college—too soon, as it had clearly proved—she could surely take him in hand without any discourtesy to the Allens. Aunt Chloe's hospitality expressed itself with the touch of dignity, which, though it makes acceptance easy, leaves denial graceful. She did not press the matter, when Ostrander, growing stronger with the heavily cooling evening, said only that it was best for him to go, and he returned to his old quarters, upon which he held some lean by courtesy until his health should admit of a definite settlement of his relation to the university. Avis was in her room when his carriage drove up, and did not come down. She had presented herself through the day only so much as was necessary to prevent remark. She hovered about him distantly. In her eyes smouldered a dangerous light. When once they had been left for a few minutes alone together, as the afternoon shadow was stooping to the study floor, she had fanned him conscientiously, to be sure, but she had not broken by a breath the expressive silence which had settled like a third personality between them. He did not watch her, but lay with closed eyes. He perceived the shining of her slender wrist, the faint scent from her dress and hair. When Aunt Chloe came in, she felt his pulse anxiously, and said she had given him too large a dose of the elderberry wine. For that next day he left her to herself and for yet another he stood afar off from a struggle upon which he felt it unchivalric to urge, more than need inevitably be, the appeal of his physical wreck and disordered future. Upon the third day he came, leaning upon John Rose's arm. Rose had found him down the street, crawling along home. But John Rose had an appointment with a lady, and would not come in. Aunt Chloe stood in the hall with her bonnet on. She was going to a very special female prayer-meeting, of which far be it for me to speak sceptically, appointed to further the discontinuance of the war. And the professor would not return from the lecture-room till after the Alpha Delta Phi dinner, which would be a late and dyspeptic affair. Aunt Chloe thought the parlour too damp for Mr. Ostrander, and would send Avis into the study. He went in, and awaited her with such nerve as he could command. 
He would not have turned his transparent hand over either way upon his chance. He waited what seemed an immeasurable, and really was rather a cruel, time. When at last she came in, down the long, sunlit, home-like room, between the rows of books, he was shocked to see the traces of a sleepless and joyless struggle that she bore. He met her with some indistinct, impetuous word of endearment, and drew her beside him upon the old mahogany sofa. "'You suffer!' he cried, with the helpless bewilderment of the strongest man before the nature of a strong woman. "'I would make you so happy, and I have made you miserable. Why do you suffer?' He held her fast now by the delicate crossed wrists. She lifted her tender face. "'I suffer,' she said, "'because I love you.' "'Oh! Is that all?' "'I never loved any other man. I did not know what it was like.' She gently drew her hands away, and folded them one into the other. "'And what is it like? Can you tell me?' One might have said of Ostrander's voice at that moment what was said once, and said perfectly of music, that it was love in search of a word. "'It is like death,' said the woman slowly, with a deepening shade on every feature. "'Then,' said the young man lightly, "'I am ready to die.' But he was sorry to have made her smile so, for her smile did not encourage him. "'It is civil war,' she said. Spurred by a momentary stinging sense of having retraced his own footsteps, he leaped on. "'Do you remember that you were to give me an answer, that you were to talk with me of our future to-day?' "'Yes.' "'And I may know, now, what it is you have to say to me?' "'Mr. Ostrander, in all my life, since I was a little girl, I have never known one hour in which I expected, like other women, to marry." "'You could not be like other women,' he murmured. But she waved his words away with her bruised hand. "'I don't think you understand what that means. I never could conceive of myself as expecting it. I cannot now. I do not wish to marry any man. It seems to me a perfectly unnatural thing that any man should look me in the face and ask me to be his wife. It always did and that a man of your superior intelligence should actually expect it is really incomprehensible to me." She pelted these words at him over her shoulder. Ostrander heard them too anxiously to smile. It was the irrational outcry of a creature rasped and wrung by the friction of her own nature upon itself. Only a woman terrified by the serried advance of a mighty love upon an able and discomfited resistance could have spoken those words in that way. But only a few men in the world would have instinctively understood this. Ostrander was not one of these few. It seemed to his dizzy eyes that her face receded as she spoke, growing larger but dimmer with every word. "'I never said this before,' she added, with the rapid, incisive utterance of one who is expressing what is so long familiar, and so long suppressed, as to have become a functional part of the being, and to exhale involuntarily like the breath. "'I never cared enough, for any one, to try to explain it but I must tell you, I had rather not be happy than to be happy at such a cost as marriage demands of women." "'Ah! Then you own that you would, that you could, be happy!' He hastened to entrap her in her sweet admission. She gave him one transcendent look. As if she had given him some matchless wine never before unsealed for human lips, his head grew light. But then there fell a swift and great withdrawal upon her, and her face gathered itself together like a garrison, while she said, I told you something about this long ago, before you went into the army, that day by the shore. 
but I could not explain it then, for I could not explain myself then. Everything that I felt then has intensified. With my feeling for you has deepened this other feeling. The more I care for you, the more I shrink from what you ask." "'Let us talk of this quietly now, and reasonably,' said Ostrander, in his low, vibrant way. "'I will urge nothing upon you. Only let us reason about it. Marriage is not to be treated with such personal irreverence or rebellion, I think. It is really the best plan Almighty God could contrive for us. It is His will that men and women should love one another, and, loving, marry." "'But I do not see it to be His will for me,' urged Avis. "'He has set two natures in me, warring against each other. He has made me a law unto myself. He made me so. How can I help that? I do not say, heaven knows, that I am better, or greater, or truer than other women, when I say it is quite right for other women to become wives, and not for me. I only say, if that is what a woman is made for, I am not like that. I am different. And God did it." There was a solemn but yet submissive arraignment in these words, and in the tone with which they were uttered, to which at that moment Ostrander found no ready lover's argument of a texture large enough to be laid against them. "'Even if I had no work, no life of my own,' she continued, less calmly, "'I think it would be the same, though I cannot tell. But I have my work, and I have my life. I was not made to yield these to any man. I was not made to absorb them in his work and his life. And I should do it, if I married him. I should care so much, too much, for what happened to him. Mr. Ostrander, if I were a man, I would not stoop to ask such a sacrifice of any woman." "'And I stoop to ask for no more than I give,' he said, with a haughty humility. "'I will take from you only what I can yield to you—the love of a life. I do not want your work or your individuality. I refuse to accept any such sacrifice from the woman I love. You are perfectly right. A man ought to be above it. Let me be that man." Ostrander uttered this daring sentiment as ardently as if he had ever thought of it before, and as sincerely as if it had been the watchword of his life. He felt himself at that moment in the radiation of a great truth that blazed from her ringing voice and her entrenched beauty. He seemed to himself to be the discoverer of a new type of womanhood, to which, as we do in the presence of all ideals, he instinctively brought his own nature to the rapid test. He would have scorned himself if his manhood had not rung responsive to it. He ventured solemnly to say, "'Only let us love, and live, and work together. Your genius shall be more tenderly my pride than my little talents can possibly be yours. I shall feel more care for your assured future than you ought to feel for my wrecked one. Try me, if you will, trust me if you can. I do not say that I am worthy, but you shall make me so. If I did not believe you could make me so, before God I would go out from your presence to-day and never seek it again." He spoke in an agitation now that extended itself, like the air they breathed, to her. She rose and walked across the study floor two or three times, with something of her father's attitude, the long, nervous step softened to a sinuous grace in her clinging dress. "'I wish I had a different past and a different future to offer you,' pleaded Ostrander, throwing one weak arm up over his head restlessly. But the one has at least been clean, I believe, and the other must be—what God and yourself will will it." She stopped her rapid walk and looked at him standing in the middle of the floor, and in what seemed a half-unconscious tone, as if she had not been listening to his last words, she said, "'I have wondered sometimes if there were such a man in the world. I always knew,' whispering, 
How I should feel! I knew it would be all over with me when I found him." Then, still softly, "'Oh, how pale you are! All this excitement is so wrong for you. I should be so glad to see you happy, to help you to get well. Oh, I think I could make you happy. I would try. There is nothing I would not do, would not suffer." With a swift motion she stirred towards him, saw him reach his arms out dumbly, wavered and turned, then— "'Oh, no, no, no!' she cried. "'Help me to say no. Come another time. I must think. I must take time, because—' "'Because what?' he demanded, sorely shaken by the prolongation of this strain. "'Because I care too much for you to make you miserable. Everything would be so hard for you. Don't think it is that I care so much about myself. I could bear it, to grow poor and sick and worn out, and never to paint, and to have to sew so much. When do you look at me—oh, you were so pale—I could bear it all. But I can't forget how it would be, and the coffee won't be right. And men mind such things, you would mind. You would be sorry we had done it. It is not right for us to marry. Don't let me do what is not right. You should see, you should be merciful to yourself and me." She seemed to slip and slide before his still extended hands like a wraith, and he heard the door opened and close, and the afternoon sun bent placidly upon the rows of books, upon the portrait of Sir William, upon the decorous mahogany sofa, and the dull figure on the carpet where she had stood. He took his hat and crawled away in the bright sunshine. Avis upstairs held her hands upon her ears as if she were trying to shut out the sound of her own words and the professor sat at the Alpha Delta Phi dinner, sat discussing representative perception with that New York clergyman who had written so intelligent a review of the identity of identity and non-identity, and Aunt Chloe at the prayer-meeting poured out her good soul for the benefit of the country. He did not seek to see her after this, but wrote to her several times, expressing more fully both the burden of his love and the reason of his hope, crystallizing calmly all a lover's sublime conviction of the practicability of his wishes. He had no answers, but he wrote bravely on. Perhaps a fortnight passed in this way. All this while, Ostrander had said nothing of his health. One day Coy came in and said, "'Poor Mr. Ostrander! He doesn't seem to get up. John goes over there almost every day. He doesn't walk out now, hasn't for a week, and the Allens take him to ride. But I hear his chum is very good to him, and he won't go anywhere else. And John says he can't see why he doesn't gain. John is very good to him, and John says—but Avis did not seem to be granting her usual tender attention to what John said, and Coy changed the subject to bias ruffles. It was when Ostrander was lying alone in the dusk on his college lounge the next day that a little note was brought to him, the first he had ever received from her. With shaking fingers he struck a light and read in her large, defined hand this only. My dear Mr. Ostrander, I should like to see you, if you are strong enough to drive to my father's house. Do not come till you are quite able. I have nothing to say that cannot be said as well at one time as another. Your sincerely, Avis Dobell. His chum came in at that moment, and Ostrander, who had not ventured into the evening air for weeks, fiercely demanded a carriage and his overcoat, and got them. He usually got what he sought in that reverberating tone. Men were almost as pliable as women to the quality of Philip Ostrander's voice. As luck would have it, there was a faculty meeting in the study, and a city relief society in the parlours. He asked distinctly for Miss Avis, and was bidden into the long, empty dining-room. There was faint firelight in the Franklin stove, 
and the moon, which was full, looked in over Aunt Chloe's ivies. There was heliotrope in the room somewhere, but it could not be seen. She came, before the lights not knowing how it was, and stopped in the doorway, uncertain. He was standing at the other end of the room. It seemed as if he leaned against a column of straight moonlight. His height and pallor were thus both emphasized. Avis, looking in through the darkened room, leaning forward a little, hesitating, thought of the harbour-light, oddly enough, and of the birds. The lamps came in while they were standing so. The servant went out and closed the door. Avis had on something scarlet over a thick white dress that blazed out with the lighting of the room. She spoke first, and said gravely, "'Mr. Ostrander, I have decided—oh, do not decide—yet. It is quite necessary. I have tried your patience over much. I have decided, and I pray you pardon me for the lateness of the decision, and for all the trouble I have been to you, and all the pain, but I have decided that I cannot resign my profession as an artist." He was hastening impetuously to remind her that they had both decided she need resign nothing, when he perceived a tender merriment that he had never seen before, dawning far within her eyes. His voice and face sprang towards her, but she motioned him back. And I forgot to tell you that I hate, with a fervent hatred, to keep house. I did not ask you to be my housekeeper. And, suddenly serious, I make very sour bread. You will bring me, he said reverently, the bread of life. He looked so wasted, standing trembling there, with his hand upon the long table, that his words seemed less the rhapsody of love than the cry of famine, and the reply, which in the telling has almost a touch of the ludicrous, in the solemn saying, was almost sublime. "'Come,' he said feebly, "'I am starving. Come!' Slowly at first, with her head bent, as if she resisted some opposing pressure, then swiftly, as if she had been drawn by irresistible forces, then blindly, like the bird to the lighthouse, she passed the length of the silent room, and put both hands, and palms pressed together as if they had been manacled, into his. End of chapter 10